0: Let's go to Yahweh in prayer. Father, Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of the day, and we thank you for all that you do. We pray that we would always strive to serve you and be better disciples of yours. Father, we thank you for this assembly. We thank you for those those here and those abroad, and we pray that your blessings would be upon this day, if we ask this in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. I'd like to um, certainly welcome everybody here and extended greetings out to those watching online. We know there's many, many people watching online, so uh, they are part of the family, just not here physically with us. Where today, I want to uh, speak about the ancient empires we find within prophecy. Some of these have occurred, some of these will occur again. You know, for me, the focal point of prophecy has always been the Middle East. This was true in ancient times, and I believe this will be true in the future. This includes nations like Babylon, uh, Syria, Persia, Greece, Rome, a nation we often don't hear about as well, and that would be the Ottoman Empire, a very important empire prophetically, I believe. All of these empires are part of prophecy, whether they have been or will be. Now, this message, I want to focus on the books of Daniel and Revelation. But before that, I also want to review some of what Yahshua said in the Olivet of Prophecy, Matthew 24. You know, this is one of my favorite passages. I want to review just a little bit of this, actually quite a bit of this, but Matthew 24, beginning with verses 3 and 4, says, and he sat, of course, this is Yahshua the Messiah, sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Yahshua answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So Yahshua begins his passage by standing upon the Mount of Olives. You know, I've had the opportunity to be in Israel twice. And um, there's nothing like standing upon the Mount of Olives, looking down upon the city of Jerusalem. You can see the traditional Temple Mount. You can see the old City of David, where it all began, right there from this very location, and it really is just a remarkable sight to be there, and it's just a, a feeling of um, awe in, in, in many, many ways. Where well, Yahshua's here, he's with his disciples, and here the disciples come to him, and they ask, "When will the end of the world come? You know, when will you return?" So, how does he respond to this? Or well, he responds by saying, Take heed that no man deceive you. You know, over the years I've wondered why Yahshua began this prophecy with a warning about deception. Why not speak about maybe false prophets immediately, or speak about the wars or, or earthquakes, or whatever else, these uh the signs of his coming? No, he begins here with prof or with, with deception. Why? Or, You know, the conclusion I've come up with is this. Deception will be at the root of why so many will fall away during this time. And because of this, as believers in the Messiah, we must ensure that we're not misled, that we're not deceived. So what are some of the things we can do to ensure that we're not deceived as believers? What can we do to safeguard ourselves from deception? You know, the main thing I believe is to study and to know scripture. And I don't believe anybody of us, any one of us, knows Scripture well enough. The Bible says that we're to study and that we're to show ourselves approved. We need to know what the Bible says. You know, as believers, how well do we know Scripture? How well can we defend our faith? Do we know what the Bible says? Do we, can we combat many, many of the uh, debates? You know, I would encourage everyone here and those listening to really study To really study, because I believe this is the safest way of not being deceived. And this would include, by the way, our youth and our teens. To take the time to study the word, to know the word. To be able to answer the hard debates. Now the other thing we can do is to lean upon those in the assembly, especially those who minister in the word. You know, Hebrews 10 verse 25, we just heard this. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but it says, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another. As so much, the more, as you see the day approaching. So in this passage, we find, I believe, two valuable lessons. Number one, as believers, we're to seek out fellowship with like-minded believers. That we're to seek out fellowship, that we're not to be a maverick, that we're not to isolate ourselves from fellowship. That's not what we should be doing Is As believers in the Messiah, Scripture says to, again, assemble ourselves, not to isolate ourselves, not to divide ourselves. And number two, it says that we're to encourage and support one another, including, as it says, as a day's approach, as Yahshua's coming becomes closer. You know, if we do these things, if we know Scripture, if we study, if we prove, if we support, I believe that we're going to be less susceptible to deception. And again, there's a reason why Yahshua began with deception. I believe that this is the most serious sign that we're to watch for. Deception, not to be deceived, not to be misled by some sort of lie. And we're going to see many lies during this time. I want to continue now with verse 6. Verse 6, again, in the Olivet Prophets. Look at some of the other signs that Yahshua gave. So 6 through 16, here's what Yahshua says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. You see, that's another another important truth as believers. We're not to allow these things to bother us. We're not to allow these things to to diminish our faith. You know, I know people out there, they they get worked up, they get concerned, they get scared, they get afraid, and they allow that fear to pull down their faith. Where Yahshua says here, these things will happen, but but he says, don't let it trouble you, don't let it bother you, don't let it, don't let it remove your faith. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows or trouble. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, to be persecuted, and shall kill you. And we do know that some will die as a martyr for the faith. We see this within the six seals of Revelation. And it says, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax or grow cold. But he that endures to the end now notice that he that endures to the end you know some people say we're once saved always saved once we accept there's no going back and there's no lost well that's not what we find here there are certainly loss if we do not endure it says the same shall be saved so we must continue on and this good news of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, to stand in the holy place. So the holy place is the holy place within the temple. Whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. So we find here Yahshua speaking about some of the prophecies that will occur, that will happen before he returns to this earth. Now based on Daniel 9 verse 27... We believe that the tribulation is seven years in duration total. And the great tribulation will be the final three and a half years of that seven years. I believe that many of the signs that Yashua's is referring to here are those that will occur, that will happen in the first three and a half years. Some would call these Jacob's trouble. So what are some of the signs we find within this passage? What do we see? Where he says, here, that nation will be against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We're going to see wars during this time. But in addition to just wars against nations, we're also going to see some, something else. The word nation here in Greek is ethnos, ethnos. Ethnos refers to a tribe, refers to a race. Based on this, many believe, as I do, that there will also be racial wars. There's going to be civil wars during this time as we're seeing in places like Syria today. So we're seeing these things. We're seeing wars amongst different nations, and we're seeing civil wars in different parts of the world, or these things will grow, these things will increase before the return of Yahshua happens. Now, he also mentions here famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. Again, we're going to see an increase in these things as Yahshua's coming becomes closer. The word pestilences refers to epidemics, viruses, plagues, diseases. The coronavirus virus is a good example of this pestilence. Again, Yahshua's coming, as it becomes closer, we're going to see more of these things. Now we also see here that at this time, believers, they will be afflicted, they're going to be persecuted, some will be murdered for their faith. Now again, we see this also in the book of Revelation. that some will serve as a testimony to the faith through their own death. And because of all these signs, in the end here it says that Lawlessness will increase. We were reading about lawlessness in the Bible study today. Lawlessness will increase. And because of that, it says that the many, many, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, basic human decency and compassion will decline. And I believe because of that reason, people will do the unthinkable. You know, whenever I um, read this and think about it, I think of Nazi Germany and the atrocities that were committed. During that time, have you ever considered how these men were able to do what they did? How do you murder millions of people and yet have no guilt? Justified for that abhorrence. I believe that man's heart can grow cold and calloused. And that's what I read here. That during this time, man's heart will grow cold. It's going to grow callous because of the sin, because of the lawlessness, because of all these signs the heart of man will grow cold, and man will do the unthinkable. I believe that we're going to see worse atrocities during this time than we, see, than we saw during the Nazi regime, which is saying a whole lot when you think about what happened during that time. Now, Yashua also refers here to the book of Daniel. He says here that is when we see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, that those in Judea are to flee. Now, why those in Judea? This is where these things will be happening. So he says, when you see these things, those in this area will, will have to flee. Now, I believe many of us, too, will have to flee when we see this happen, when we see this abomination of, de- of desolation standing in the holy place. Now, I believe that this prophecy, this, this abomination is the prophecy. That will usher in the Great Tribulation. And as we see again in Daniel, this happens in the middle of the tribulation. We see that in Daniel nine, verse twenty seven. And again this ushers in the time known as the Great Tribulation. It transitions from a time of general tribulation to great tribulation. And I believe that it will be at this time that the hatred and the martyrdom will increase and become worse. At this time, it says that the man of sin will stop the sacrifices and oblations. We see that in Daniel 9, verse 27. And in place of that, it says that this man will, again, put this abomination within the holy place. Now, based on this prophecy that we find in Daniel, to me, it seems that maybe the man of sin may return to some sort of Hebraic system. Because, then again, it says that he's going to stop the sacrifices and oblations. Or if you just stop the sacrifices and oblations, you have to have sacrifices and oblations. But he does that three and a half years into the tribulation, according to Daniel 9, verse 27. So we see here, from all indication, again, that there's also going to be a third temple. Now... Some people ask, because we believe that the temple was located within the city of David, not on the traditional Temple Mount, they will say, where is the temple going to be? I don't know. I don't know if the temple is going to be on the traditional Temple Mount or the city of David. I kind of lean that it's going to be in the Temple Mount. But I could be wrong with that. I don't think anybody really knows. I think there's a lot of evidence to show that the temple was originally within the city of David. The uh, Zion, as it's called, was the first Jerusalem. But again, it may be within the uh, Temple Mount, but I do believe that there's going to be a temple built during this time. Well, let's move on now to Daniel, really focus on what we find from Daniel, and then we're going to move on to Revelation. So Daniel 2, Daniel 2, and again, we're going to focus on ancient empires, ancient empires, what role they had historically, and also what role they might have prophetically. So Daniel 2, 32 through 44, says the image's head was of fine gold. Now this is, by the way, in case you don't know, this is the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream. His breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, and were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Now, the uh, one that, are, that, that is breaking is Yahshua at his return. It says, Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken in pieces together and became like the sh- chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Again, this is a kingdom. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. O thou O king art a king of kings for the Ella of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. Ella's Chalde, by the way is Elohim or El in equivalent. Power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thy hand, and he hath made thee ruler over thee all them all, thou art this head of gold. So we see he identifies the head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom and fair to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things." And as the iron that breaks all things shall it break in pieces and bruise? And whereas I'll sauce the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, the kingdom of these toes. It says, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as sauce the iron mixed with myrrh clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Or partly divided. And whereas I'll sauce iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is mixed with clay. So the image we see here was seen by Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And as we know, the prophet Daniel was able to interpret this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. So what exactly did Nebuchadnezzar see? Or as you see on the slide here, he saw a metal man. And this metal man had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and toes mixed with, with iron and clay. Now, as we see on the slide here, we believe this middle man, and most agree with this, that this middle man represents Babylon. That would be the top, of course, and Persia, Greece, Rome, and ten prophetic future nations. We'll talk more about that as we go through this message. I want to take an in-depth look at each of these nations, each of these nations, and understand how they are represented through this image. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar here that he represents what? Daniel, Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, represents the head of gold. He represents the head of gold. So the head of gold here would represent the Babylonian Empire, also known as Neo-Babylon, New Babylon, or the Chaldean Empire. So multiple names for this Babylon. Neo-Babylon was in power between 5 or 626 BCE and 539 BCE. Now, the original Babylon was during the... King During the time of King Hammurabi, most uh, historians and scholars credit this man as a great lawgiver. He was one of the ones who really codified a system of law very, very early. In fact, the first Babylon existed uh, during 1894 B.C. and 1595 B.C. are the dates that most will uh, provide. So we have original Babylon, and then we have Neo, or new Babylon. Most of us, when we're referring to Babylon, we're referring to New Babylon. We're referring to Neo-Babylon. We're referring also to what is called the Chaldean Empire. It's all the same thing. New Babylon, Neo-Babylon, the Chaldean uh, um, Empire, or simply Babylon. That's generally what is understood. So as we see on the map here, and I want to show a map, the nation or empire of Babylon was within the modern-day nation of Iraq. Now, it's not a perfect fit, but certainly what we see here is that the ancient empire of Babylon, again, Neo-Babylon, was within the territory of Iraq. In fact, Saddam Hussein uncovered much of the, many of the walls and, and archaeological finds of ancient Babylon. You can see it on the Internet and probably in person if you're brave enough to go. So this was the extent of the Babylonian Empire. Now, what about the other, moving down the image here, the uh, chest and arms of silver? What does this represent? What do we see in Scripture? According to most, this represents the Medo-Persian Empire or simply the Persian Empire, as most would would, uh, qualify this. It was founded by a man we should all be familiar with, and that is Cyrus the Great. He was also the one, and this is why we should be familiar with him, he was the one who really allowed Israel to go free, from Babylonian bondage after he conquered the Babylonians. Now, this Persian Empire was in power, most will say, between 550 BCE and 330 BCE. The two arms here represent the two different peoples that made up this empire. That would be the Persians and the Medes. And again, they were known collectively as simply the Persian Empire. Now, we also know from scholarship that the Persian Empire was also known as the ancient Iranian Empire. A lot of people don't realize that. It was known as the ancient Iranian Empire. Why is that? Well, because that was, in large part, where they were. And this is also why the Iranians today, they will not call themselves Arabs. Some will take offense if you call them an Arab because they are Iranians. They are Persians, not Arabs. There is a difference. Now, we see on the map here, and as we see on the map, it included at its peak much more, than Pers- or much more than Iran. This was a vast area that the Persian Empire had. This was a superpower of superpowers. And it included most of the Middle East and also parts of Egypt, as we see on the map here. Now, what about the next part of the uh, metal man here, and that is the belly and thighs of brass? What does this represent? What's the image here? Most agree that this symbolizes the ancient empire of Greece and very specifically under the under the leadership of Alexander the Great now we know that Greece conquered much of the middle east and other parts of the world now as a side note the ancient empire of greece actually goes back to about the 9th century bc so it's a very very old empire there's different segments of the Grecian Empire. Normally what we think of when we say Greece, we think of the Hellenistic period, the Hellenistic period, and that was between 323, the death of Alexander, and really when they were conquered or annexed by Rome, which occurred in 146 BC. So that is the Hellenistic period, and that is a period we generally consider when we say Greece. But again, Greece goes back much, much further than this. It's a very long history of uh, with with this ancient empire. Now, here's a short description of Alexander's conquest. I'm going to read this from a uh, ushistory.org. It says, When his son Alexander took the throne in 336 B.C., he he vowed to complete the plans of his father. In 334 B.C., Alexander invaded Persia. You see there was a contention and there's this crossover between these nations. So he invaded Persia, which lay across the Algean Sea in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Turkey certainly plays a big role again in these ancient prophecies. After three grueling years of warfare and three decisive battles, Alexander smashed the Persian armies at the Tigris River and conquered the mighty Persian Empire, including the legendary city of Babylon. For many Greeks, this victory marked a moment of sweet revenge against a very bitter foe. At this point, at the age of 25, imagine that, 25 years old, and he's conquered probably the superpower of the Middle East of this ancient world. 25, he says, Alexander ruled an expansive empire. Nevertheless, his ambitions were not satisfied while fighting the Persians. Alexander conquered Egypt and founded a city at the mouth of the Nile River. We should all be familiar with this. The city, which he named Alexandria after himself, became a cosmopolitan, diverse, bustling trade center of trade, the arts, and ideas. But Alexander was not done He continued his campaign, driving further east until he reached India and the Indus River in 326 BCE. Now, here's a map. It shows just how vast Greece was under Alexander's leadership, under the time of his rule and reign over this superpower. As we see on the map here, he conquered much of the Middle East. He also conquered some of Egypt, and he went as far down, and he stopped at India there, but he went far down as India. I mean, this man conquered much of the known world. Now, let's look at the last image here, or the last historic image. The last historic image here is represented by the two legs of iron. What does this represent? Well, this represents Rome, the ancient Roman Empire as we know, Rome was the greatest of all four empires. It exceeded the territory of any of the empires before it. Its territories included parts of Britain, Europe, Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, and beyond. To just show how vast the empire was, here's a map. This was the greatest extent of the Roman Empire. We see, again, Britain, much of Europe, Africa, the Middle East, Egypt, they conquered much of the known world. Now, as many historians will point out, and something very pivotal to this study, is Rome had two halves. They had the western half, which was represented by Rome, and they also had the eastern half, which was represented by Constantinople. Now, we know historically that the western half of Rome fell in 476 CE, but the eastern half, which became known as the Byzantine Empire, continued for another thousand years. It eventually fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. So, this is a very long history. Rome had a very long history when we recognize the eastern half and not just focus on the western half as so many do today. Now, the last item we see here are the ten toes, ten toes of iron and clay. Now, it's important to realize that these ten toes are not historic. These ten toes are not historic. They are prophetic, and we're going to see this as we go through the word today. Revelation, we're going to see this, and also in Psalms, believe it or not. In Revelation, we see that they will rule with the man of sin. They're going to support, they're going to give their allegiance to the man of sin. We'll talk more about that. So what does the iron and clay here symbolize? Well, I believe that the iron represents strength. But the clay represents weakness. Weakness is what the clay represents. Division. Now, what does it mean here? This is real important, I believe. What does it mean here? When it says that the ten toes will, quote, not mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. So they're going to mingle themselves with the seed of men, it says, but they shall not cleave to one another. I believe that this indicates that they're going to be scattered throughout the world, but will not assimilate within the cultures. Now, in many ways, I believe we see some parallels between these prophecies and what we see with uh, many of the Arab people, and especially those part of Islam. You know, as we know, many of the there people, especially those who uh, follow Islam, refuse to conform and adopt foreign cultures, foreign systems of law, foreign ways. This is why we see things like Sharia courts all throughout Europe. I don't know how many Sharia courts in Britain, but it was an amazing number. Years ago, we did a, a uh, Discover the Truth Talk live, I think it was, and we gave the number of Sharia courts that existed just in Europe or in Britain, in England. Just amazing, the number of Sharia courts. And the Sharia courts often conflict, it's said, with the courts of England. But it doesn't matter because they too have this legitimacy, even though they contradict, because they don't assimilate, as we find through Scripture. You know, there's one more point I want to I focus on here. It's important to notice that in this passage, we find a succession of empires. We find a succession of empires. That is such an important point to notice. It is critical to notice here to, to realize that we have a succession of empires. You know, for example, Persia defeated who? Persia defeated the Babylonians. Greece defeated who? Greece defeated Persia. Who then defeated Greece? Or Rome defeated Greece? So you see, we see a succession of nations within this passage of Daniel 2. Now, again, just to point out, the ten toes are not prophetic, they are, or they are not historic, they are prophetic. Now, this idea of succession is crucial, again, to the prophecy of the beast in Revelation 17. We're going to really focus on that, but before we do that, I want to turn to one more passage here in the book of Daniel, and this is Daniel 7. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions. So now is Daniel the one having the, uh, the uh, dream and visions of his head and upon his bed. When he woke the dream, wrote the dream, and told the sum of the matters, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from, from one another. The first was like a lion and as eagles wings and beheld to the wings there were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it and behold another beast a second like a bear and it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth of it between the teeth of it and they said thus unto it arise devour much flesh after this I beheld and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of the fowl. And the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw it in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse or different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So what do we see here? We find four different beasts with different characteristics, different attributes. Now, the meaning here is much the same as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. Very similar meaning. These four beasts represent four different empires, starting with Babylon, as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. So let's take a few moments to look at each one separately, to understand some of the imagery here, some of the symbolic language, and realize what it is trying to convey here. So it says the first beast was like a lion and it has wings of an eagle. Now there is certainly some interpretation here. There are many, many different ideas as to what these, uh, what these symbols really represent. Well, I believe the lion here represents strength. Well, the wings of the eagle symbolizes the quickness at which the Babylonian empire spread. very quick empire. Now, the second beast is like a bear, it says, with three ribs in its mouth, and it devours much flesh. Well, I believe the bear represents strength, while the three ribs symbolizes the three kingdoms that Persia conquered, and those would be Media, Lydia, and Babylonia. Those are the territories that it conquered. The eating of much flesh simply refers to the many nations and peoples it conquered during its rule and reign. Now, the third beast says it's like a leopard. leopard, had four wings and four heads. The leopard represents the speed of the Grecian Empire. Now, as we read with that description of Alexander the Great, he moved at great speed throughout much of the known world and was able to conquer much of that territory. The four wings symbolize the four divisions and heads, the four divisions of the empire after his untimely death. And as we know, when Alexander died, and by the way, that was at the young age of 32, so he did not live a long life, died at a fairly young age, Greece was divided amongst his four generals. Now, to the most well-known was Seleucus. Seleucus was given, the Assyria, uh, given Syria, and also Babylon, and Ptolemy was given Egypt. Now, we also see here a fourth beast. This fourth beast is very important to recognize and to understand. Now, many people will say that this fourth beast is Rome. I don't believe that this fourth beast is Rome. It describes this fourth beast as dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly. And it says that it's different from all the other beasts before it. Something's unique about this beast. And I believe, again, it's the fact that it is going to be the kingdom, the empire that the man of sin himself will oversee. We also see here, and this is very important, that this fourth beast has ten horns. Ten horns. Now the ten horns here correspond to the ten toes that we find in Daniel chapter 2. They also correspond, as we're going to see, to ten ten kings that we find within the book of Revelation. So we find ten toes, ten horns, ten kings. They all have the same meaning. They're all referring to the same thing. And that is ten kings or kingdoms that will rule and reign with the man of sin. We're going to see that as we go through this message. Again, many people believe that this symbolizes the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not have ten kings, did not have ten toes or ten horns as we see here. This is the main reason why I believe that this is prophetic and not historic. Now, here's how the Companion Bible, here's what it says. It says, um, quote, not Rome. For it has ten horns when it, is, when it is first seen. Moreover, these ten horns are not seen till the end of the end, or the time of the end. This fourth beast, therefore, belongs to the time of the end. So, again, the companion Bible is acknowledging that this fourth beast, because of the connection with the ten horns, does not belong historically but belongs prophetically. It belongs to the time of the end. Now, before moving on, I want to point out once again that we see a succession of empires within this passage. We see a succession of empires here in this passage. And that's such an important point as we press on. So let's look at Revelation. Revelation 17, starting there in verse 9. Revelation 17, starting in verse 9. It says, Here is a mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and there are five seven kings now listen to the description listen to the description we see here that we see a chronological pattern with these kings it says five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet come so us seven five had fallen one existed and one had not yet appeared And it says, and when he cometh, he will continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not even, he is the eighth. So we find eight kings. And the fact that this eighth king, it says, is of the seven and goes into perdition. So we see here that the beast has seven heads and is described as seven mountains. Now, from Scripture, we know that a mountain often represents an empire. This is not a hard connection to make. We can see in Micah chapter 4, it says that Yahweh's mountain will be established over all the other kingdoms, over all the other mountains on earth. Yahweh's mountain, or Yahweh's kingdom. You see, we see a parallel in Micah 4 with mountain and Yahweh's kingdom. So, a mountain often represents a kingdom, a nation, an empire of some sort. And again, this will occur in the millennium when Yahshua reigns and rules over this earth. Now here it represents kingdoms or nations, and it represents seven specific kingdoms or nations. Five again, which had fallen, one that existed or was, and the other which would come but was not in existence at this point and then we also have an eighth which has a connection to the or, uh, which has a connection to the seventh now what does all this represent what do these kingdoms what do these mountains represent we have a, a chart in the restoration study bible third edition i want to share with you so here's what we believe these kingdoms represent i'll just sort of go Where you see on the chart here, so we have Egypt, Assyria, New Babylon, Persia, Greece. Those would be the five that had fallen, and they had fallen prophetically or historically before this prophecy. We have another one here, Rome. Keep in mind that this would include the Byzantine Empire as well. And then we have the Ottoman Turks. So we believe that the Ottoman Turks, I'll explain this in just a moment. And then the eighth, we believe that it will be a revived Islamic caliphate similar to those Turks, that Ottoman Empire. Now, again, we see here five are fallen. Just review this one more time, so that would be Egypt, Assyria, Neo-Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece. Now, as a side note, some will um, say, and and I kind of, um, in some ways I'm inclined to agree, it's not a big deal either way, but they will say instead of Egypt and Assyria, we should insert, after Greece, the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires because from a historical standpoint, they are mentioned within Daniel, and they did succeed in that order. But whichever way it is, we know that these empires existed prior to this prophecy. I believe that they would have also had some sort of connection to Israel. And these would certainly be uh, uh, certainly a, a good um, conjecture as to who these nations would, would be. Now, the one empire that existed, and in general is not in dispute, is the one that existed during this prophecy, and that would have been Rome. Rome existed during the time John of Patmos received this prophecy. Now, the seventh one here is the one typically in dispute. So what is this seventh empire? Let let me explain why we believe that it represents the Ottoman Turks and not a revived Roman caliphate, or Roman empire, I should say. You know, as we saw in Daniel 2 and also 7, We see here, I believe, a succession of nations. A succession of nations. This is so important to understand. We see this pattern. We see a pattern of succession in Daniel 2. We see a pattern of succession in Daniel 7. And I believe that we see a very similar pattern of succession here in Revelation 17. Now, as we've already talked about, Babylon was defeated by Persia. Persia was defeated by Greece. Greece was defeated by the Romans, who defeated the Romans. Some contend that Rome fell to the barbarians. Others say that it continued on through the Roman church. But as you saw in the book of Daniel, Rome had two halves, one on the west through Rome, one on the east through Constantinople. Now, while the western half of Rome again fell in 476 CE, the eastern half continued for another 1,000 years, until it was defeated by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, which, by the way, the Ottoman Turks remained a superpower for 600 years. And you wonder why, like Turkey, is for as a side note, uh, nations like Turkey and Syria want to want to go back to those days of of glory. Syria was again a superpower through the Persian Empire. Syria was, and we have Turkey a superpower through the Ottoman Empire. So we see through history, Rome was succeeded by who? Rome was succeeded by the Ottoman Empire, which I believe makes him the seventh empire, from which the man of sin or the beast or the inter-Messiah will come from at the end of this age. So based on this, it's possible that the fulfillment of this eighth kingdom will be a revived Islamic caliphate ruled and reigned and controlled by the man of sin, similar to the Ottoman Empire. And I believe in those same locations very likely. I want to share with you a quote from an author, Walid Shobat. Most of you probably have heard the name because I've quoted this man several times throughout the years. He wrote a book. It's called God's, God's War and Terror. Now, before I read the quote, I want to, I want to uh, or, you know what, well, let's read the quote. So here's what he says. On page 81, it says the empire of the Antichrist will not be a new empire. Rather, it will be a revival of a previous great empire that will have suffered what the Bible calls a fatal head wound. And we see that in Revelation 13, by the way, that verbiage. This empire is the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which replaced the Roman Empire after the fall of its remaining eastern half. You know, we've believed this, by the way, for many, many years. I, I read this book, not more, well, it's been a few years now, but I was shocked to find that he agreed with, with our understanding of prophecy and, and history and how all this occurred. So, what do we know about Wali Ashobad, this author? Well, we know that he was born to an Islamic father, Christian mother. We know that he identified with the Islamic faith throughout most of his childhood and youth. In fact, he at one point considered himself an Islamic terrorist according to his own testimony. Where later on in life, I'm not sure when it was, but later on in life, he then converted to Christianity. So that is the story of this man. And, you know, I believe the, the reason this is um, important is because he comes with a different perspective. Because he's had this upbringing in Islam. And he understands Islam, the traditions of Islam, the beliefs of Islam, the, the goals of Islam. And he looks at prophecy for that reason from a Middle Eastern standpoint and not from a middle and not from a European one. And it's so important, I believe, as believers, that we do the same. Prophe- prophecy is always focused on the Middle East. Now I'm not saying Europe's gonna, not gonna have anything to do with it. I believe, in fact, that the uh, church, the Roman church, is probably the, the the harlot or the woman of Revelation 17. But we know that the harlot's gonna be burned with fire by the ten toes. And the ten toes, I believe, are. Islamic, as we will see in just a few moments. So this is what we find here. This man believes, too, that the Seventh Empire represented the Ottoman Empire, which again defeated the Empire of Rome through the Byzantine Empire, through the eastern half that continued on a thousand years later after the western, and that then the Eighth will, will, will be connected to the Ottoman Empire. The Eighth will be of the seven. The seventh was the Ottoman Empire. The eighth will be a revived caliphate, very similar to that. You know, from a prophetic standpoint, again, it makes much more sense to me to focus, on, to focus on the Middle East instead of other parts of the world. Now, verse 12, we find the Bible also mentioning ten kings. Ten kings. So this corresponds to what we've already read in the books, book of Daniel. Revelation 17, 12-13, it says in the ten horns which thou will saucer ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. That's an important point to notice. These kings have received no kingdom as yet. I believe that they're going to receive their kingdom, where it says here, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So you see these kings don't exist. These kingdoms do not exist. It says that they're going to receive their power, their, their domain with the beast for one hour. And I believe that's during the tribulation, that one hour. These have one mind. They're in unity. They're in concord, it says, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So based on this, what is the purpose of these ten kings, these ten horns, these ten toes, as we found in the book of Daniel? Where it says here in Revelation that they're, that they're, gonna, that they're united, number one, and they're going to give their strength, their power, their influence to the beast. So the purpose of these kings will be to support the man of sin, support the anti-Messiah, support this son of perdition as we find scripturally. Now, do we know prophetically what nations these ten kings represent today? Many will say that these ten nations, that these are the European, that this is a European Union. Well, here's the obvious issue with that. There's 28 members right now to the EU. We see 10 kings here. That's 18 kings or 18 members, too many. We cannot have a 28-union confederacy fit into a 10-member system. It doesn't work. The math doesn't add up, literally. So who are these? Who are these 10 kings? We know the book of Psalms, most people use Psalms as a book of inspiration. It certainly is. The Psalms is also a prophetic book. And I believe we find the answer there in the book of Psalms. Psalms uh, 83, verse 4. It says that they have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel, so we know who this is referring to, the name of Israel, may be no more in remembrance. What are they trying to do? They want to obliterate the nation of Israel. They want to remove the nation of Israel. It says, For they have consulted together, they're united do you remember reading in Psalm or Revelation 17? It says that they, they were in unity, they were united. We see here the same thing. These this confederacy is united for this common purpose and this common goal. It says they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against the the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab, the Hagarenes, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philist, Philistines, when the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lod. So notice here that these ten nations form a a confederacy, an agreement for the sole purpose to destroy the nation of Israel so that Israel may be no more remembered. They want to obliterate Israel not only off the map, but they want to extinguish the name of Israel. They want to remove, obliterate, destroy the nation of Israel. Of Israel. Now, based on my study and based on our study here, this confederacy has not happened. These ten nations coming together, forming this, this alliance, has not occurred, meaning more than likely it's prophetic. We believe here that the ten nations are the same, likely the same nations mentioned in the ten toes of Daniel, the ten horns of Daniel, the ten kings of Revelation. So, do we know where these nations are today? Do we know physically, geographically, where these nations are today? We have a pretty good idea based on scholarship. So here's what we believe. Sayyidim so would represent southern Jordan. The Ishmaelites would represent the Arabs in general. Moab would represent central Jordan, as we talked about in the Bible study today. Giba would represent Lebanon, or the Hagarines would represent Egypt. Amon would represent the northern Jordan. Amaleks, the Sinai Peninsula, the Philistines, the Gaza Strip. Tyre, Lebanon, Asher, Syria, and Iraq. So based on our study, this is where these nations would be located today in the modern world. So from this list, what do we find? What are some of the patterns we find with the nations mentioned here? Number one, they're all Middle Eastern. They're all Middle Eastern. And number two, they're all Islamic. They're all Islamic. Two very important points to understand and to, re- and to recognize. You know what's interesting is that according to Walid, there's also an ongoing effort by, by some within Islam to establish a 10-member confederacy for this same purpose. So let me read from the, his book again. Here's what he says. This is according to Islamic tradition. Says in 2002, a plan for the reestablishment of the caliphate was written. You see, these people are pushing toward this. If you believe for a moment that Islam is not wanting to reestablish the Islamic caliphate throughout this world, you are horribly mistaken. They have a plan, many of them, not all of them, but many of them. They are focused on restoring this Islamic caliphate throughout this earth. And this is one plan. But it goes on to say the Guiding Helper Foundation entitled Plan for the Return of the Caliphate. And the Caliphate, by the way, is the empire, just in case you don't know. So the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Caliphate, same thing. According to the plan, the caliph, which is the ruler of Islam, the caliph, would be assisted in his rule by a ten-member council of assistant caliphs. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Something maybe we've seen scripturally? Maybe we've seen a beast with ten kings who will assist this man? Well, that's precisely what we see here. These assistants or council members are similar to ministers in many of today's government. You know, based on this, not only does the Bible speak about ten nations forming a confederacy, we see the same thing in Islam at least in some Islamic stories. I'm not saying that all in Islam would believe this or, or be pursuing this, but certainly there is an effort by some. You know, as I believe we see in the Bible, the beast and his empire will be built upon all the previous empires as we find within the word, including historically and, and also prophetically the Ottoman Empire. You know, as again a revived Islamic caliphate that will uh, reign and rule, I believe, at the end of this age. Now, with messages like this, when I always try to end on maybe a little bit of, of a positive note, you know, it's important as believers that we don't allow messages like this to uh, cause us to live in fear. These things are coming. If we believe for a moment that these things are coming, we're just blind and ignorant. And I don't believe most of us are blind or ignorant. I, I believe that we recognize there, there are some bad things happening. And there will continue to be bad things happening as time goes on and, t- and as Yahshua is coming comes closer, but we're not to live in fear. We're, again, not to allow this to dampen our faith, to, to decline our faith, to cause us unnecessary worry or concern. Yashua said, don't be troubled. And we're not to be troubled as believers. You know, Yahshua spoke about many of these prophecies, and as we saw from the word, we're to prepare for them. We're to prepare for them. And you know what that means? That means also preparing us as believers. Because it's more important that we are prepared as believers and as people of Yahshua than knowing and understanding how these things will happen. Because, believe me, nobody knows everything. Nobody has all this figured out. If you hear a man or or whoever say that he has or she has all this figured out, you just ignore everything they say after that point. Because nobody has all this figured out. They think they do. They're, They're just horribly wrong. So we need to be more concerned. We need to look into these things and understand generally, here's what's going to happen. But we're not to allow these things to concern us, to cause us, to cause us to lose sleep. No, we're to have faith and realize that no matter what happens, that we're going to have triumph through the Messiah. And as I said in the beginning of this message, the best way we can prepare is, is through study, is through prayer, is through encouragement from one another. And I really do believe that. Our goal as believers should always be to strengthen our faith and commitment to Yahweh and You know, we do this by not compromising his word, number one, by following him in all ways and building a faith that can overcome all tribulation. And that's not easy to do if you think that you have that done and you're good and you're you're mature and and there's nothing more for you to grow or learn from, I, I would encourage you to rethink that position. But if we do these things, if we again avoid compromise, if we follow him, if we encourage one another, if we build our faith, we're not going to be deceived. And I believe we're going to hear those words. And this is really what we're all striving to achieve. Well done, good, and faithful servant, because that is what we're all here for. We're all here to better ourselves, to become better people, better believers, understand the word, but most importantly, live the word. May Yahweh bless you.